Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? A little tired today. I was battling a migraine earlier, and while the pain has gone, my brain is tired after. Hmm. But, as they say, the show must go on. Yes. How are you? I'm pretty good, Sarah. Uh, can't complain. It's a relatively nice day today. Yeah. The thunderstorm came through but didn't, like, do anything. Mm-hmm. It was just a lot of cloud. So, what are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching Jungle Woman from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Oh, no. Resistance to this movie is futile. This movie has um, what today in 2019 we would call like bad SEO in that like trying to do research on it and just searching in like Jungle Woman like is very difficult to get like a specific thing. Um, On Wikipedia it'll take you to a page about like the Jungle Woman character archetype. Oh. You know, like like uh, Sheena the She-Devil and, and, like, that kind of stuff. But this is a specific Jungle Woman. Specifically, it is the sequel to Captive Wild Woman from the previous year. Refresh our listeners' memories, perhaps, on Captive Wild Woman, Sarah, if uh, they have not heard that episode. Yeah, folks, if you want to listen to that episode, it's uh, episode 106. Captive Wild Woman is currently ranked at number 40. Wow. Yeah. So, we really liked John Carradine as Dr. Sigmund Walters. Mm -hmm. um, Because it definitely colored our interpretation of that movie. Yeah, Carradine, I feel like, was the main thing that bumped that movie up the rankings so high. I think it's the only thing that bumped it up, honestly. Um, I seem to remember we liked that the um, the ladies saved the day at the end. That's true. Captive Wild Woman uh, is from 1943. It was directed by Edward Dimitrik, still with Universal Pictures. And, like kind of mentioned, John Carradine is our mad scientist, Dr. Sigmund Walters. We have Milburn Stone as Fred Mason, who is a circus lion tamer. Evelyn Anchors as Beth Coleman, the circus secretary and also fiancé to Fred Mason. Everyone needs a secretary. Come on. And the film also introduces to the film world Aquanetta as the lady ape, basically. Aquanetta is kind of a unique person in and of herself, um, and my understanding is she returns as the titular jungle woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's a little bit of a like recap on what her deal is. She was born Mildred Davenport, um, and she traded on her ambiguously ethnic look to get her foot in the door into Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, kind of coming up with a few different backstories to justify her, uh, what people described as exotic beauty. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one backstory is that she has Arapaho heritage, and that's a Native American tribe. But she was orphaned and raised by other people, and that's why she didn't she didn't have birth records to give the uh, Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. What's closer to the truth is that she was African American, mm-hmm. but she also did claim at one point to be a Venezuelan. Yes. While living with a Spanish family in Spanish Harlem. Mm -hmm. So she's trying to go all over the place a bit. Um, We talked a bit about in that episode, like, the attempt to try and use, like, because she was African-American. She was from an African-American family, uh, but she was light-skinned. And so, like, trying to kind of use that to, like, trade up basically, in the, like, racial hierarchy of the time, where it's like, okay, well, but it's the 40s, so maybe I can be, like, Spanish, and that's better than being black, you know? And then it's like... In terms of getting roles. Right, exactly. In terms of getting roles, in terms of getting, you know, being a popular entertainer, this kind of thing, because you can cross over into, like white people entertainment, which is where, you know, your money is, basically. Yeah. And then it's like, hey, where's your birth certificate? And it's like, oh, actually, I'm Native American. And I think that's where, supposedly, her name, like, Aquanetta, is supposed to be, like, Arapaho for, like, water and fire or something like that. And it's like, yes, I'm sure that, I'm sure that Aqua is... Uh, the the Arapaho word for water, like. <laughs> so she's this very unique figure in 1940s Hollywood, but we were a little disappointed with her in the film because she is given no lines mm-hmm. and not really any opportunity for acting beyond standing and staring. Yeah, she doesn't really get anything to do in her own movie, or what is supposedly her own movie. Yeah, um, so we were a little disappointed with that, so hopefully that changes a little bit in this film. And of course there's the obvious racism with a woman of color being hired to play a humanized ape against an all-white cast. Yeah. Yeah, we had plenty to say on that in episode 106. The story of Captive Wild Woman features Fred Mason, the aforementioned Milburn Stone, working at a circus um, as an aspiring lion tamer, basically. Beth Coleman is his fiance and also secretary at the circus, and they recently brought home, they captured in the wild an ape, and then brought it back to New York, I think, this ape that they name Sheila. Uh, and this ape is played by Ray Corrigan. Yep. And Sheila is very fond of Mason, and she seems to be very trainable, um, so they're pretty happy to have this ape. Uh, who is then, like, kidnapped and made to look like she escaped by a Dr. Sigmund Walters, or John Carradine, mad scientist character, whose whole plan is that he wants to... I forget his motivations, (laughs) but basically he wants to take estrogen from a person and put it into an animal to create, like... An animal-human hybrid. I believe there was something about creating an army of supermen to conquer the world. Like, it it, it <laughs> got into that territory. Okay. But I really, 
yeah, don't remember the why very well, but yes, it was it was using human sex hormones to turn apes into people. Yeah. Um, now, Dr. Sigmund Walters also has a connection to Mason's fiance Beth Coleman, because her sister is sick, uh, her sister Dorothy, so they take Dorothy to Dr. Walters's sanatorium for treatment. Mm-hmm. And they've been using Dorothy's estrogen to uh, put into, like, bunnies and guinea pigs and such, and none of that is being successful because, uh, as Dr. Walters puts it, he needs an animal with, like, higher brain functions that will actually have the will to live, hence why he kidnaps this ape. So, with... (laughs) Oh, I forgot how bonkers this movie is. So he, he kidnaps Sheila and, um, this is at the point when Dr. Walters, uh, his assistant, Miss Strand, goes like, whoa, 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 maybe, maybe we're going too far, Dr. Walters. Maybe, like, you're attractive and I love you because I'm your assistant and it's the 40s, but I think this is a bit too far. Besides, this will just be an ape with, like, female behaviors. And that's when Dr. Walters goes, ah, Right. So I will take your brain and put it in the ape, Miss Strand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the. <laughs> so that's what happened to her. Um, in the end, uh, the procedure is a success, and Sheila has been made t- into Paula Dupree Gorilla Girl. Mm-hmm. She's a human woman, so she says. Well, she doesn't say. She says nothing at all. Yeah, so Dr. Walters says. So to see if Paula uh, Aquanetta here um, recalls her animal instincts and her animal life, uh, Dr. Walters takes her back to the circus. Her fondness of Mason comes through, and it's uh, thanks to her kind of influence and domineering nature over animals that helps him become a lion tamer. But then she goes, she sees Betty and Mason kiss, and it's like, oh shit, I have a romantic rival. So she goes and threatens Betty, no actual attacking or anything, um, but threatens her one night, and that passion, that energy of threatening causes Paula to kind of revert back into more of a gorilla form than lady form. The beast flesh creeps back. So, meanwhile, Dorothy, Beth's sister, is calling up Beth and saying, I don't want to do the, these procedures anymore. Like, I think he's doing something real, real, real spooky here. I'm not into this. Please come get me, sister. Please come get me and take me home. So Beth goes to Dr. Walters, and that's when she gets in trouble because now... Dr. Walters has another person for the brain transplant to successfully turn Chila back into Paula Dupree. Meanwhile, Mason is trying to be a lion tamer without the dominating stare of a gorilla lady, uh, and it's going terribly, and he's getting mauled during the circus performance. Cut back to Dr. Walters threatening... Beth? I've definitely been saying Betty at times instead of Beth. It's fine. Just keep going. Okay. Okay. He's threatening Beth 
and she's backed into a corner and releases the ape cage. So Chila, as the gorilla, goes and attacks Dr. Walters, turns to Beth, kind of like growls, and then runs off and runs across town to the circus to save Freddie Mason Mm -hmm. from the lions, who then... Uh, like, also escape from the cage. So now we have lions and tigers running amok. And so police come in and they're shooting every animal in sight, including the heroic Chila, who dies in her gorilla form. Yeah, because the police just see this ape running off with a dude in her arms. And are like, ah, we'll save you. And... Yeah. Yeah, so that's the end. Um... Now, part of why this movie ranks so high, like I said, it's at number 40 right now, is because John Carradine, this is his first entry into Scream Scene, and he is amazing. He's yeah, he's like, really good. He's a charismatic, intelligent, terrifying mad scientist here, and he manages to bring some, like, teeth back into that type of stock character. Yeah. And we, we were very impressed with that. And we were so impressed that we were willing to accept this movie that had this horror movie plot, while the whole circus stuff, all of that stuff that I just kind of skimmed over, was just uh, footage reused from the 1933 The Big Cage with Lion Tamer Clyde Beatty. You know, the Lion Tamer. Yeah, 50% or so of Captive Wild Woman is, like, stock footage from The Big Big Cage. Cage. It's... Kind of wild. It's like, it's almost, you almost have to admire, like, the... The gall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The brazen uh. <laughs> gall. But part of that was the fact that, you know, we have Freddie Mason in the the cage, the big cage plot, uh, because he looks like, um, because he looks like Clyde Beatty in the footage, but that means that our female characters get to go off and release Chila at it defeat the bad guy mm-hmm. and like save her own sister and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that we we did like that those aspects. How much of the big cage is in the jungle woman? Well, Sarah, we will have to see. So Aquanetta returns uh for Jungle Woman. This is actually her next film that okay. she did after Captive Wild Woman. That's uh not too good cuz it's like Another, like, it's the following year. Yeah. Uh, and to compare, Evelyn Ankers and Milburn Stone also return. Uh, and this was not their next film. Ankers had appeared in nine in the intervening years, including Son of Dracula, The Mad Ghoul, and also the second movie in the Inner Sanctum Mystery series, Weird Woman, starring Lon Chaney Jr., Yeah, so the Inner Sanctum Mysteries were, like, a... They were mystery stories that had, like, a bit of a weird element to them. So it's like, oh, maybe a fortune teller's involved, or, like, this guy's telepathic, or, you know, there's some voodoo thing going on here, or whatever. But they were mysteries, not horror movies. And it was an anthology. And the movies that Universal did all starred Lon Chaney Jr. Makes Um, It's just, he was... He's a different character in each one, but he's always the lead. Milburn Stone, meanwhile, had appeared in 14 movies in the intervening time. Uh, All of them, like, a variety of small roles. Milburn Stone wasn't typically a lead actor. He kind of only lucked into being the lead actor in Captive Wild Woman because they thought he looked 
enough like Clyde Beatty to like make the use of the stock footage work. Which I suppose he did. Mm-hmm. Replacing uh, John Carradine in the mad scientist role this time around is J. Carol Nash, who we just saw in The Monster Maker doing the Bela Lugosi shtick. Mm-hmm. The rest of the cast of this movie consists of minor actors, uh, people who, you know, did a lot of B-movies around this time. Uh, there's, like, a lead actor in this who was in this and, like, one other movie, and that's his whole career, and he has, like, no biographical information available on him. Um, or there's also, like, familiar character actors, like Samuel S. Hines, who, like, is always the, like, judge or the dad or the doctor in these movies. The script for Jungle Woman comes to us from one of the four credited writers of the original Captive Wild Woman, uh, Henry Suker, who had also co-written The Mummy's Tomb. And there are also two other writers on Jungle <laughs> Woman with him. Uh, Bernard Schubert, who had co-written Mark of the Vampire back in 1935. Oh, yeah. And Edward Dean, who had written Calling Dr. Death, which was the first of the Inner Sanctum mystery movies. Calling Dr. Death. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's a strong title. Directing this film is Reginald LeBorg, who was born... Reginald Grobel in 1902 in Vienna, Austria. I see why he changed his last name. But can you see how he arrived at Leborg from Grobel? No. Alucard? <gasps> Dracula? <laughs> no! Grobel? <laughs> Leborg? Oh no, that is. He should have had more creativity. He majored in political economy at the <laughs> University of Austria, and in his younger days, he worked at his father's banking business as a international banking representative. How the heck did he get into film? Well, the stock market crash of 1929 wiped Ooh. out his family's fortune in business, Yeah, and he, quote, lost interest in the finance world, unquote, and he ended up directing... Operas and musical comedies at small town theaters throughout Europe. He immigrated to the United States in the 1930s, starting out as an extra in Hollywood before making his way up to second unit directing and directing shorts. He served an 18 month stint in the U.S. Army during World War II, and when he returned, Universal promoted him to directing feature films. His second feature film for Universal was Calling Dr. Death. Weird Woman was his third, and Jungle Woman his fifth. Okay. So he's, so he's been familiar with this kind of movie. Yeah. Um, his preferred genre was musical comedy, however, which was his first and third films, I think. Uh, I remember he did an interview once, way later in life, where people asked him, like, you know, why he did movies like Weird Woman and Jungle Woman and stuff, and he said, well, because it was the 40s, and if you said no to a movie, they put you on suspension, and then you didn't get work. So you either towed the line, or you starved. Yeah. Jungle Woman was released on June 1st, 1944. It was not critically well-received. What? Yet a third movie in the series, The Jungle Captive, 
would be released later this year. Oh my goodness. They're definitely trading on the theme. Aquanetta, however, would not return for the third film. Uh, her role was recast, and she instead appeared in the third Inner Sanctum mystery movie, Dead Man's Eyes. Hey, Inner Sanctum clearly has a really strong writer on titles. After her contract with Universal expired, she acted for RKO in the 10th Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan flick, Tarzan and the Leopard Woman, in 1946. You can probably guess who Aquanetta played in that movie. In 1948, she had a son with Mexican-Jewish millionaire Luciano Bashuk, who died at age four. Aquanetta tried to sue for half of Bashuk's fortune in a divorce, but lost when no record of their being married could actually be found. She just has really bad luck with, like, legal documents, I Mm. guess. Well, this is the thing when you won't tell anyone your real name or where you're really from or who your parents really are, how you were really born. Suddenly it's like, cool, so then you can't get the marriage license, which then means that when you try to divorce someone, you have no legal right to it. She retired from acting in 1953 and became a radio disc jockey. Her second husband, painter Henry Clive, died in 1960. Husband number three was Phoenix, Arizona car dealer Jack Ross, who ran for governor of Arizona in 1970 and 1974. Aquanetta then gained some local fame in Phoenix, appearing in local TV ads for his car dealerships. And they had four children. When she discovered that Ross was cheating on her, she filled his Lincoln Continental convertible with concrete. Good for her. In 2004, she passed away from Alzheimer's. Quite the life. Mm-hmm. Wow. There has since been, I think, an, it's either an opera or a musical written about Aquanetta. Okay, well, how are we watching Jungle Woman? So Jungle Woman is only available as part of Universal's print-on-demand DVD service, the Universal Vault. So you basically only get to watch Jungle Woman if you really want to watch Jungle Woman. Sure. Uh, I'm sure it pops up on TCM from time to time. (laughs) But like... Okay, boys, how are we going to fill this hour? But otherwise, that's kind of it. Oh, boy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, folks, uh, we'll let you know if it's worth ordering to print on demand from Universal. Uh, You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Jungle Woman from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBourg. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Jungle Woman from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Ben, what did you think of this? You know, it wasn't all the way terrible. Yeah. I was a little, like, apprehensive as we started going, because we start with a little bit of a clip show. 
just recapping Captive Wild Woman, which I, I guess I did for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we actually got into some good stuff, so I'm pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, like, amazing. No. But, like, hey, it wasn't terrible, and I wasn't, like, pulling my hair out. It exceeded my extremely low expectations. Yeah. That's why it's always good to have extremely low expectations, Ben. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about you tell us what it's about? So, as you sort of alluded to, Jungle Woman opens with a lot of stock footage and recaps and flashbacks. And in fact, the entire movie has a flashback structure, which was a choice. We begin the movie on a dark night in a location outdoors when a shadowy man is attacked by a shadowy woman and he fights back and she is killed. This man is Dr. Fletcher and he is... I guess charged with murder, and he has pleaded guilty. So, case closed, but there's a coroner's court inquest happening into the murder, because nobody really knows who was this woman, and why did he kill her, and what's going on, because he just like... was like, yeah, I did it. Yeah, he just confessed right away. I don't really know what a coroner's court is, or what the inquest would mean or decide because it's not like straight up a trial. Usually at inquests, it's to determine is this case worth going to trial? Mm -hmm. But they still have a jury. Yeah. In this case, we've got the coroner acting sort of like a judge. The district attorney is there, but he's not really asking like questions. He's just sort of making determinations People are giving, um, like, statements rather than, like, doing testimony. But there is definitely a jury sitting there. So it's kind of like a grand jury inquest, but it's at the coroner's office and the coroner is running it. I don't really know. If this is a real thing, listener, and you know what and why it is, please tell us. Reach us at at underscore scream scene on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Because I just kind of got the impression it was something where, like, they could have a court structure but not really have to follow, like, actual rules of how a court works. So, anyways, they sort of bring Dr. Fletcher to the stand, I guess. And they're like, hey, so, yeah, what happened? And he's like, well, I killed her. And they're like, yeah, we know that, but, like, were there there extenuating circumstances, like... You're an old white man who is a professional and respected in the community. Ergo, the law will, you know, super go easy on you if you can just give us a reason to. Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, it would be far too fantastic. And they're like, nah, try us. (laughs) So. So he does. Yeah. I don't know who determined who should be at this thing? Like, did Fletcher invite some people along who just happened to be useful? Did the district attorney look into things and discover, like, oh, maybe I should ask these people? Who knows? But the people who are there with Fletcher are his daughter, Joan, her fiancé, Bob, and then also Fred Mason and Beth Coleman from the last movie, uh, still played by Milburn Stone and Evelyn Ankers. They asked Dr. Fletcher, like, yeah, maybe start at the beginning. So Dr. Fletcher's like, yeah, so remember the climax of Captive Wild Woman? 
I was there in the audience at the circus when, like, the big storm happened and all the lions and tigers got out of their cages and the ape, Chila, rescued Fred and then was shot by the police. And what's amazing about this is this means that we get a flashback to scenes of J. Carol Nash watching stock footage of Captive Wild Woman that is also mostly stock footage from the big cage. Like, we're, we're two levels of stock footage deep in this thing. Yeah, they still used enough stock footage of the big cage that they opened with a, we would like to thank Clyde Beatty for allowing us to use this yeah. stuff. Which is the same <laughs> thing they had at the start of um, Captive Wild Woman, so. Yeah, and when we saw that during the opening credits, I was like, no, because that did not bode well. So it turns out that after Chila was shot and pronounced dead at the end of the first movie, um, Dr. Fletcher was like, huh, what a neat ape. May I buy the body for uh, a science? A penny. Oh, science. And they were like, sure. And then he took the body home and was like, oh shit, it's still breathing, actually. Gave it a bunch of adrenaline and took the bullet out and was like, cool, I have an ape now. In Fred Mason's testimony at the inquest, he explains that he went to go visit uh, Dr. Fletcher when he heard that Sheila the Ape was doing better. And he went to visit Dr. Fletcher, and Dr. Fletcher was like, yeah, so what is the deal with this ape? And Fred explained Sheila's backstory, and it was like, oh, okay, I see, I see. And, you know, what was the deal with this Dr. Walters guy? And Fred's like, you know, really, it's my wife who knows more about that. So then in Beth Coleman, or I guess now she's Beth Mason's testimony at the inquest, she explains that she went to Dr. Fletcher's place and was like, here's my backstory. So basically, we get in the Fred section, like, more stock footage from Captive Wild Woman, explaining, like, basically his plot line in that movie, where, like, I rescued this ape, and then one day this mystery girl showed up who could control apes with her mind and never spoke. Animals. Animals, yes. And then Beth's testimony at the inquest is her basically giving her stock footage from Captive Wild Woman, where it's like, I was in love with Fred, but so was this, like, Paula girl, and she turned into, like, a weird half-ape, half-woman creature and attacked me in the night. And so... It's really wild because we get, again, like, it's them on the stand doing a flashback to them talking to Dr. Fletcher where they are then flashing back to Captive Wild Woman. Like, it just, it's a really tortured narrative structure that doesn't really seem super necessary. Like, there must have been a cleaner way of doing this. Regardless, that is now the end of Fred and Beth's part in the movie. They have new footage of these actors in the movie so that those actors can do flashbacks to new footage of them doing flashbacks to the old footage of them. Yeah, they merely serve to pass the narrative baton. Yes. So now we're about 15 minutes into this one-hour-long movie, and we've exhausted stock footage from Captive Wild Woman, so <laughs> it's time to resume Dr. Fletcher's testimony. And the thing about... <sighs> this narrative structure of starting with this murder and then doing, like, a trial is the reason you would do, like, that narrative structure is to try and, like, set up some mystery about, like, who was this woman and why did he kill her and what was the deal? But by also using the trial as an excuse to do 
the recap of the first movie, before we even get to Fletcher's story, we now know the woman he killed was Paula. Paula was the ape Chila. She was an ape woman. Cool. Mystery solved. Yeah. Regardless, we're going to get Dr. Fletcher's story. And that story is that once he had the ape kind of up and running, as it were, um, he was curious about Dr. Walters and the work Dr. Walters was doing on, you know, turning people into apes and apes into people. So he decided to buy Dr. Walters' estate since, you know... He was dead. Right. And I guess part of that meant buying Dr. Walters' sanatorium, Crestview. Now, in the first movie, this place came across as, like, Dr. Walters' house, big mansion place, where he was doing research on glands, and, like, he had rooms for patients to stay if he was, like, looking into their case, and he had, like, laboratories and operating rooms. In this movie, Crestview Sanatorium comes across as sort of more like a, like, expensive getaway resort rest home, like, where if I was, like, rich, and I had, like, the vapors, and I needed to go for the country for a week to, like, cure myself, this is where I would go. Because now it's, like, a big mansion on a big park sort of ground with, like, a lake and, like, cottages, like, outside the mansion, and it has, like, a, there's, like, a groundskeeper and, like, all this staff. Listen, this is just his way of doing a side hustle. Right. He still has the sanatorium open with mm-hmm. patients in the actual mansion, mm-hmm. but then he vents at the cottages mm. to people, including his daughter, uh, to help make some side money. What's funny is, like, he seems to have inherited the staff and patients of the sanatorium when he bought it. Like, like operations are still ongoing because he's got patients when he just kind of moves in, which is interesting. Anyways, one of these patients is Willie. And Willie is basically Lenny from Of Mice and Men. But if Lenny from Of Mice and Men played Lenny from Of Mice and Men, which is to say, like, the character is kind of a big lumbering, like, idiot. It's sort of vaguely implied that he's here because he's, like, mentally incompetent. But the actor also seems to probably not, like, be very, like... A competent actor. A competent actor, So it just kind of, like, piles it on a little too thick. But Willie informs Dr. Fletcher that the gorilla's missing. So they they search the grounds, and we get a glimpse of a dark figure in the night stealing some clothes off, like, a clothesline in, out, like, the backyard of the sanatorium. And they... Where else are you going to hang your laundry? They don't find the ape, but they do find Paula just walking around in the bushes wearing a dress. And she, again, like in the first movie, doesn't talk. But this time, at least people notice. And Willie's kind of like, gosh, she sure is purdy since I found her in the woods. I guess I can just take her back to my room for a fuck toy, right, Doc? And Dr. Fletcher's like, no, Willie, please, no, go back to your room. Okay, Young lady, you seem to be traumatized and in shock. I'm a doctor. Like, come inside and we'll see what we can figure out about you. Now, I said a dark shape took some clothes off the line. If there's one thing that Jungle Woman apparently couldn't afford, it was Crash Corrigan and his ape suit. Because we sure don't see any new ape footage in this movie. That is correct. Listen... Crash has really upped his rates Mm -hmm. since, like, the last few movies. 
Or this movie just was really dirt cheap. Um, Probably that, yeah. So Dr. Fletcher questions Paula. She won't talk to him. And this is when his daughter Joan and her fiancé Bob show up. And Paula sees Bob. And if you remember from Captive Wild Woman, Paula real thirsty. So now Paula can talk. And she the first thing she's ever said in any of these movies is going up to him being like, Hey, Bob, I'm Paula. And... The doctor's like, wow, like, you know, you kind of brought her out of her shell. Oh, my God. Uh, So Joan and Bob are going to be staying on the grounds for a while. And uh, Paula has been given a room and kind of turned into a patient. But she wants to be with Bob and not around Dr. Fletcher or Willie or any of these other people. Especially Willie, who Mm -hmm. she explicitly says, stop bothering me. Go away. Please stop. And he's just like, oh, but you're so pretty, and I just want to harass you so much. (laughs) So one night, Joan and Bob are out on the lake, and Paula sort of follows them because she wants Bob. And Willie kind of follows Paula because he wants Paula. And that's the last uh, we see of Willie because he gets got. We see him dragged into a bush. Mm Mm-hmm. By someone or or something. Uh, and then <laughs> someone or something gets into the lake and swims along to where Joan and Bob are in their canoe and capsizes the canoe and tries to drag Joan down to a watery death, but sort of gets scared off. A bunch of weird stuff starts happening at the sanatorium. Uh, Willie has disappeared. Someone capsized the canoe and, you know, someone with great strength broke into the chicken coop and killed all the chickens and also the sheepdog that the groundskeeper at this medical sanatorium had. Yeah, I feel like that's a case of someone saw Dr. Renault's secret. So there's all this weird stuff going on. Willie's gone missing and someone super strong is going around around breaking stuff. So they're worried that it's Willie. Dr. Fletcher takes some fingerprints from Paula, uh, from some stuff in her room, and some fingerprints from some of the broken stuff, to a fingerprint man. What's his name in the credits? Like, Joe? Joe, the fingerprint man. (laughs) And Joe says, yeah, this is weird. Uh, These are the same fingerprint, but one is real small. Like a human size. And one's real big. Like, maybe like an ape size? Weird. Weird. The doctor is now kind of realizing that Paula is the ape. Uh, At no point is it explained, by the way, how Chila the ape, who was dead but then is now alive again, turned back into Paula. Well, they try. They add a little bit to her backstory. Yeah, they imply that she was actually a woman to begin with who was then turned into an ape before Fred even found her and then was turned back into a woman by uh, John Carradine, which is not what her backstory was in the original movie. No. It also still, to me, doesn't explain how she transformed, because in Captive Wild Women, she explicitly needed to get, like, hormone injections and, like, cerebral, like, transplants in order to, like, transform. But at least they're kind of keeping with the established lore of whenever she gets, like, angry or whatever is when she quote-unquote transforms and has this, like, these larger hands and such. Right. It's sort of unclear what she's turning into because, as I said, we never see... What? What it is. We never see her when she's in, like, monster form. We never see a gorilla. They don't use an ape suit. So I'm not... It's kind of unclear what's happening. Regardless, 
Uh, Dr. Fletcher kind of thinks it's time that he do something about Paula. Paula, meanwhile, has realized that she needs to get away from here uh, because she wants to be with Bob. So she tells Bob that Dr. Fletcher has been hurting her. Yeah, she has bruises from him. Yeah, on her arm. It's kind of, I think for production code reasons, like, it's no one, it's kept really unclear what she's sort of accusing Dr. Fletcher of, and it's kind of to the movie's detriment because they also don't really show you the bruises. Like, she just shows him her arm, and he goes, oh, wow, like, and has a reaction, but as the audience, you kind of have to, like, put it together yourself. Um, and then this movie starts to have a bunch of sitcom moments where, like, Joan walks in on Bob and Paula talking to one another and assumes he's cheating on her because, ugh, I hate that. I hate that trope. Anyways, Bob takes Paula to a uh, second opinion, and Dr. Number Two is like, I mean, yeah, she's got bruises, but, uh, heck if I know where they're from, and I don't really know what's going on with her. You should probably take her back to, like, her original doctor who knows her case history. So he's like, all right, takes her back to Fletcher. And Paula the whole way through is like, don't take me back there. I don't want to go back there. Like, I just want to leave. I just want to be with you. Meanwhile, Dr. Fletcher has informed his daughter Joan, like, so Paula's an ape woman. And when Bob and Paula get back to the ranch, as it were, uh... (laughs) Joan runs up and is like, oh, Bob, thank goodness you're okay. Paula's a crazy ape woman. And Paula has sort of slinked off into the shadows. They think that she's going to go after Fletcher. So Bob runs into the sanatorium to tell Fletcher, like, hey, you know, Paula on the loose and so on. But actually she's following Joan back to Joan's cabin. And we get sort of a scene of Joan going through the woods back to her cabin with Paula stalking behind her like, knocking over trees and shit with her super strength while the woods get ever louder of with creature noises. And we get Joan kind of starting to run and tripping and falling mm-hmm. and getting back up and getting to her cottage. Yep. And then once she's in her cottage in the woods, Paula, who has the super strength, but, like, th- there's no makeup. It's just her in, like, a black, like, dress... Suit just, dress. Just, yeah, in a, a dress suit. like um, Pushing over trees and shit, and gets to the cottage and is, like, banging on the walls and stuff. And that's when Dr. Fletcher shows up, fights Paula, like we saw at the start of the movie. He's got a sedative that he wants to inject her with, but he ODs her with the sedative and she dies from it. Yeah, just during the fight. So we come back to the present and everyone's like, okay, okay, well, you definitely killed someone. But if your story is true, she wasn't technically human, and therefore technically no laws were violated. Yeah, you killed an animal. You put down a dangerous animal, not killed, like, a legal human being. But, like, you know, who's going to believe your story, Doc? And the coroner at the coroner's court is like, well, we've got the body in the morgue. Let's take a look and maybe, I don't know, do an autopsy. Maybe that's me as the coroner's job, and maybe I could have done that and saved us all (laughs) a lot of time and trouble. So they head down to the morgue, pull the body out on the slab, roll back the curtain, and Paula is in her, like, half-woman, half-ape makeup from the first movie. Bana! Uh, the district attorney apologizes to Dr. Fletcher. Fred and Beth are nowhere to be seen, so they have no reaction to this. And, uh, the end. Yeah. Yeah, this movie... 
isn't doing anything super hugely innovative, especially since it spends like a quarter of it just recapping the previous film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of like monster going after lady because mm-hmm. of like jealousy and like kindly doctor, whatever. Like we've seen all of these archetypes, I guess, mm-hmm. or like tropes before. But what this movie has done kind of interestingly is uh, added yet another, I think this might be like only the second or third installments of woman running and falling when being chased, but probably most significantly the lake scene with the canoe and yeah. dragging Joan down. Yeah, doing like some water stuff and like having an underwater uh, menace. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about this movie you know, so much of it is stock footage within stock footage and flashbacks within flashbacks. I really don't see why the inquest flashback structure was necessary. It takes a lot of the bite out of the story and the movie when, like, we know how it ends. And the point usually of knowing how something ends is the mystery of how we got here, but then, like, we also know that because we know going in that Paula is Chila. Also... One thing that frustrates me here and kind of makes it hard for me to recommend this movie is a lot of the supposedly sympathetic characters aren't. Like, I think, like, Willie's the worst example. Like, everyone talks a lot about, like, oh, Willie didn't deserve to die. He was just such a well-meaning, good-natured lad. And I'm not sure, like, if it's a, you know, if it's the performance or how he's written or a combination of both, but Willie makes the movie, like, unwatchable for a stretch. Because he's very much a caricature of a, like, a big dumb guy, where it's like, God, gee, Doc, what guy, I found a lady over here, and it's, it's really tough to sit through, and then he's, like, you know, really predatory towards Paula, and it's just, it's really tough to sit through. Um, yeah. And I don't really understand if we're supposed to sympathize with Paula or not, because, from my perspective watching the movie, this is someone who was, you know, she, maybe she was a human to start with, but we know for sure she was an ape. And then she got, like, injected with human lady bits and turned into a human. And then she fell in love with Fred Mason. And then she reverted back to an ape. And then she was shot. And then she wakes up, I guess, on an operating table, goes off into the woods, turns into a lady again, and gets, like, brought back to this place with all these new people she doesn't know. And it's like, well, you have to stay here now. And then she's like, well, I want to leave. And everyone's like, no. And then they kill her again. Yeah, I feel like they wanted to do a little bit of the sympathetic monster, but they didn't really know how. And fortunately, now that we get to see a bit more of Aquanetta's acting chops Mm -hmm. with her speaking in this movie and kind of stalking about, she doesn't have a lot of acting talent. No, she doesn't have a lot of like presence. She gets more to do, mm-hmm. um, and I'm glad that she gets more to do, and she gets to talk, and she gets to actually like be the one stalking around after people, um, and glaring at people menacingly and stuff, but it's still like not enough. Yeah. Thinking back to Frankenstein with Karloff, he was able to bring sympathy to the character. Even like Colin Clive was able to have, like, some dual nature in his character of the Doctor, um, of, like, being, of going too far, but also being sympathetic. And Aquanetta is unfortunately not quite able to do either. For me, there's a bit of, like, a 
cross purposes between what the characters are doing and how we as the audience seem to be meant to feel. Mm. Because Dr. Fletcher, Joan, and Bob are all acting and presented as these are the characters we should be rooting for. And Aquanetta plays Paula as, like, cold and menacing and, and you know, she's going to kill you. But in terms of their actions, like, she's someone who shouldn't be here and wants to, like, leave and have, like, a life, and they're like, no. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I'm just not sure if that's the fact of, like, the way that sympathies towards, like, like, a woman of color in, like, a insane asylum against her will, like, have shifted since the 1940s. Like, I don't know if it's just what I'm bringing to it as a viewer now, but I just couldn't tell, like, who here is supposed to be a good person. It's not really clear to me what Paula's deal is supposed to be. Like, is she turning into an ape? Is she turning into a half-ape? Why is that happening? How is it happening? You know, because all of it's kind of kept off screen. Like, they're trying to do maybe, like, the Val Luton thing of, like, keeping it off screen so that it's, like, more horrific in your mind. But it's just, it just makes things very, like, unclear. And I think what is also detrimental to there being, like, thrills in this movie um, is the fact that there's no makeup on Equinetta. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, until the end, but that's, like, supposed to be, like, a shocking reveal. Right. Um, there's no moment where... You know, like, thinking of Lon Chaney Jr. in his wolfman makeup stalking Mm -hmm. through the night, even stalking after Evelyn Anchors. Mm -hmm. Like, what we see for Aquanetta stalking Joan is, you know when, like, that, that, like, image of a woman who has, like, her fists clumped up her and her arms straight and her shoulders up to her ears and she's, like, stomping away? Mm. That's what... Aquanetta does for stalking? I just wonder how much of it is, like, a reluctance to put makeup on a woman or, like, make a woman monstrous because so much of, you know, the quote-unquote, like, value of women in Hollywood movies of this period is their beauty, is their looks, right? That's exactly it. She has to be pretty. That's why she's in a pantsuit, even when she's attacking the doctor at the beginning slash end. Yes. Like... There's no point where she... Like, I'm not saying she needs to be, like, in, like, leopard rags or something, like, in no. stills that I saw of the Tarzan and the leopard woman. She, But, like, having the makeup that she has on in the morgue during some of these scenes would help evoke even, like, the parts that they're trying to rip off of the wolfman and cat people. Yeah, she doesn't get to be a monster, basically. Mm-hmm. And it shows a real, like, gender bias mm-hmm. where the movie ends up not working as well because she's not allowed to go the full distance that like her male counterparts get to go. Yeah. I think another thing that really harms this movie is that on the whole like J. Carol Nash is the only good actor in it really. Yes. Um, I will say that the guy who was playing Bob, uh Richard David mm-hmm. is his name. He did pretty good. Oh, really? (laughs) I thought he was one of the worst actors in the whole movie. Okay, so he's super wooden, but when he's reacting to Paula showing him bruises Mm -hmm. and stuff, his reactions to, like, that felt serious and didn't feel like, oh, no, you've been hurt? Let me take you to a physician. 
there there did seem to be like some empathy coming through, um, despite how wooden. Every, I mean, the character he's playing is, is. Oh, I mean, he's a hero. He's like a male protagonist in a horror movie. So, like, the fact that he's cardboard isn't a surprise. I guess he just doesn't have like he doesn't have like a very traditional line delivery, and his voice is. He just doesn't seem like he's gotten any training as an actor. Oh, definitely. He seems like whoever rented them the, like, I don't know, estate that they were using and, like, the, you know, canoes and the lake and whatever was like, hey, my boy Richard has always wanted to get into acting. You know? Like, yeah. that's kind of his level of acting. Eddie Hines as Willie is Oof. just real painful. No one is in this is very good, up to and including Aquanetta, and it, it really kind of lets the movie down in a lot of spots. Yeah. But there are two parts of the movie that make it up to me, mm-hmm. and you've already alluded to both of them, which are basically the Paula Stocks sequences, like at the lake, and then at the end of the movie through the trees, where the movie actually succeeds in creating like suspense and driving up tension and, like, approaching being scary, and actually kind of, in both cases, really gave me, um, like, a flash-forward feeling to, like, Friday the 13th. Yeah. Like, where you're at, like, a summer camp, and, you know, we've got the killer that stalks you through the night that is, like, invincibly strong and doesn't talk and just, you know, goes for whoever they're after, right? Yeah, or even in the water, like, I was like, I, I don't know what year... Creature from the Black Lagoon is... 54, I think. Okay. Because I get the feeling that whoever, like, had the idea for that movie probably saw this. Yeah, it feels like a real precursor to that kind of thing. Yeah, and just, like, would have, like, put that that image in their brain. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have Creature from the Black Lagoon without Jungle Woman mm-hmm. uh, kind of clickbait thing going on. Um, I'm just saying that, like... It's evocative and interesting to see it. Yeah, I think those two sequences really get some horror going mm-hmm. in a way that, like, we don't see sometimes in better movies than this. And I will give director Reginald LeBorg, like, full credit for those scenes. And those kind of saved the movie for me from being, like, a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. I would um, agree. And those kind of made me sit up and pay attention. So, where would you like to rank this? It feels like we're moving pretty naturally to this. So, Sarah, for my floor, I've got Black Moon, which is at number 94. Dang. I think this is definitely better than that, um, because unlike Captive Wild Woman, it avoided the visual that Captive Wild Woman had of, you know, when Paula turns evil, her skin gets darker. Uh, So it kind of avoided the racism and so, therefore, it is, you know, better than Black Moon, which is Racism the Movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, going up from there, my ceiling was uh, The Invisible Ray, which is number 84, uh, which I thought, you know, with Karloff and Lugosi and, like, lasers and, like, the revenge story and, like, the glowing guy in the dark. And, you know, it also kind of had, like, an early slasher movie vibe, um, but I think was better than this because it wasn't, you know one-third stock footage and, you know, a cast of just completely wooden non-actors. So that was kind of where I ended up. 
was a range of basically uh, 85 to 94. Oh boy. So I started looking at ranking by looking at where Captive Wild Woman is Mm -hmm. at number 40. Right. And I think that this is a better horror movie than Captive Wild Woman, but not better than the movie right above, El Fantasma del Convento. So my range (laughs) slash spot is number 40. Okay, so that's a problem. Yeah. I think here's the problem. The problem is that, like, we've got Captive Wild Woman very high because of John Carradine. Yes. And because basically what we did when we ranked Captive Wild Woman was we kind of, like, ignored the big cage stuff and said, okay, just looking at the horror bits of it, this is where it should go. Yeah. And that's kind of where it went. And so I can understand why you would be more inclined to this because you didn't have to sit through, like... As much. As much, like, lions and tigers footage that didn't have to do with anything. But on the other hand, I think, like, there's, like, a weird... A weird thing happening here where, like, Captive Wild Woman's maybe a little bit higher than it should be because... If we're putting this above Captive Wild Woman, then it's going above, you know, White Zombie, and it's going above The Raven, and it's going above Dr. X, and it's going above, you know, Dark Eyes of London, and Curse of the Cat People, and, like, last week's movie, uh, The Lady and the Monster. And I don't know if that feels right to me, because this movie has two good scenes, and then, like, a lot of stuff that you have to just power through (laughs) like you just have to power through the first like 15 minutes that are just recap then you have to power through like the next 15 minutes which are all willy to get to like the first good stuff like the good stuff happens halfway through this hour-long movie and then the ending's kind of weak one of the other movies that this really reminded me of was number 54 the mummy's tomb probably because the same writer Mm. or it is involved yeah, it's a, another movie we kind of identified as, like, a proto-slasher movie. Um, the Mummy's Tomb, despite having kind of those same similarities, mainly just with the way that they opened up with flashbacks, I think The Mummy's Tomb is definitely better than Jungle Woman. So I'm going to keep kind of skimming down. And the next one that kind of catches my eye as being questionable is... You know what? Kenyuina is kind of interesting to compare with us. Yeah, because they're both women as monster. Yeah, but probably Kenyuina did it better. Well, Kenyuina actually explored, like, the motivation of Kenyuina better, where she was, like, this woman kept in, like, a aquarium who, like, was, you know, just this guy's trophy mm-hmm. and then, like, rebelled against it. Whereas, like... I don't know if this movie really is on purpose exploring the idea that, like, Paula is rebelling against her surroundings, because it feels like it's just saying Paula's horny for Bob, and everything <laughs> else is, like, a like an unintentional side effect that the writers didn't really think about. Yeah. So, kind of moving down, I agree with why you're comparing it with The Invisible Ray. Right below The Invisible Ray is The Mummy's Hand, which was pretty tough. Yeah. And I think if we were to... Compare, like, which one would I want to watch again? The Mummy's Hand or Jungle Woman? I probably would actually want to watch Jungle Woman again, because it had some surprising moments, whereas The Mummy's Hand was a bit of a slog. But I think The Invisible Ray, because it had better motivations, the motivations of revenge, Mm. for why we're having a bit of a a stalker, um, 
Jason hunting you down scenario, um, I think Jungle Woman should go below that. Yeah, the other problem that I had was, like, when I looked above the Invisible Ray, I couldn't really justify putting this above, like, The Unknown or the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde. Like, just movies that had more effort put into them. Yeah. Like, I think that's the big thing that lets down Jungle Woman is it feels like it was shot in a weekend. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Okay. So coming in at the new number 85, Jungle Woman from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you, you can drop us a line through our appeals box online. You can reach us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us on most any podcasting service by subscribing to our RSS feed. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes or a comment on SoundCloud or a rating on whatever service that you listen to us on. We really enjoy getting feedback. We'd also appreciate it if you helped out the show by telling a friend about the show if you think they might enjoy it. Uh, We're always on the hunt for new listeners Another thing that we're really appreciative of is if you head on to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can help support us financially. You can become a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month. There are higher donor levels. At $5, you get access to weekly bonus audio cut from previous episodes. That might be bits of trivia that maybe really weren't so... Pertinent. Pertinent. Like more information about Humphrey Bogart's life, or... A lot of uh, trivia about, you know, Tarzan movies or whatever. (laughs) Or even just cut research. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the Caligari episode was already quite long, and we cut a lot of research, which is now up as Patreon content. Right. Uh, At the $10 level, you get access to horror short fiction that I write that is exclusive to patrons. Uh, Two new stories just went up recently. Uh, that are the sort of first couple chapters of what's going to be a uh, serial, longer form story. Uh, So if you want to sort of get in on the ground floor of that, you can check out the $10 patron level. That's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we are going to be sticking with Universal Studios, and we're going to be sticking with sequels, because it is The Invisible Man's Revenge... Starring John Hall, John Carradine, and Evelyn Ankers. It's not so much a sequel as it is like a sequel. It's actually technically the fifth movie in the series. <laughs> we just didn't watch movies three and four. Because one's like a spy movie and one's a, a comedy. Yes, a romantic comedy, yeah. correct. Okay, well I'm looking forward to seeing this. Or, or will I see it if it's The Invisible Man? We'll see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.